Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Tonight, we are going to attempt to work our way through two chapters in the book of Hosea and not go to any other books or not look at any other prophetic statements. We're going to look at chapter 10 and 11 in the book of Hosea. They're short chapters. We should be able to get through them tonight. There's only 14 chapters in the book of Hosea, so we're getting very close to the end. And then starting in the new year, we will decide which of the minor prophets we will look at next. We will look at at least one more of the minor prophets before returning to Second Kings, but uh, haven't quite decided what the game plan is yet. At the very end of chapter 11, there is a verse that I think perfectly sums up, summarizes the entire book of Hosea. Chapter 11, verse 12 Chapter 10 is actually God speaking negatively again, laying out his case against national Israel. But chapter 11 is God stating again his faithfulness and longing for Israel. Chapter 11, verse 1 is one of the more controversial verses in Hosea, and we'll talk about it because Matthew actually cites it. In chapter 2 of the book of Matthew, he cites from Hosea 11.1. And there are lots of different uh, theological camps that have gotten a hold of that connection and created all kinds of theology around it. So tonight we will talk about that connection and what it means and hopefully what it doesn't mean. But Hosea 11.12 says this, Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. And that's kind of the whole book. He has summed it up. They have been faithless toward him. They have lied. They're full of deceit. They are argumentative and unruly and rebellious, but God remains faithful. And that is the theme of the whole of the book of Hosea, and I think in so many ways, the theme of the whole Old Testament. As we've been going through this study of Hosea, we have looked at so many different passages of several different prophets, and they all say the same thing. They all say Israel's really, really guilty, and Judah's really, really guilty, and God is really, really faithful, and that the unruliness and the faithlessness And the lies and the deceit of Israel and Judah are not sufficient to cause God to turn from his own word, his own promises, or his own covenants. And that is exactly the God that we preach here, not only because we're reformed and so we believe in a God who keeps his covenants and his promises, who never changes, who is always faithful, but even beyond that, it's what the Bible teaches over and over and over again that once God says something, once he makes a statement, 
God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, will he not do? Has he spoken, will he not make it good? I mean, that's these kinds of promises. The Bible is just replete with these kinds of statements that once God states something, once he applies himself to somebody, once he either puts his law on a group of people, then they're required to keep that law because God doesn't change. But once he puts his love on people, well, then God doesn't change. His love is on those people. And that is the consistent faithfulness that you and I are absolutely dependent on. We are counting on that faithfulness because me, me personally, and you, you personally, didn't mean to look right at you, comrade, but us collectively as humans, not faithful. We, we try, but if it weren't for the faithfulness of Christ, I don't think there is any one of us who would be able to say that without the help of God, we would be able to maintain our steadfastness for the Lord. We all recognize our inability to be consistent in our walk and in our commitment and in our faith. And so that's why the story of Israel and Judah and God's dealings with national Israel are just so vitally important and why we've taken so much time here at GCA over the course of many years to talk Israelology and to really explore the Old Testament and to get an understanding of God's dealings with Israel because he is dealing with a people whom he has chosen and revealed himself to and who he made a covenant with and then gave them a law and codified them as a nation, and they have more advantage than any other people group in the history of the world, and yet are rebellious and deceitful and lying against him. And were it not for God's faithfulness, then Israel would end up eternally and inextricably judged. There's no way around it. You couldn't remove the judgment from them were it not for the faithfulness of God to his people and the grace, the astounding grace, the overwhelming grace where God will keep his word despite the rebellion of the people he has chosen. And that's the essence of the theology we teach and believe here, that God is faithful and merciful and kind and gracious to people who just don't deserve it. And that's the theology that you glean from a study of Israel. And the whole of the Old Testament then is about God's dealings with Israel and you end up with that theology. So even though we call ourselves Reformed or go by the nickname Calvinist, that's not the reason that we talk about God's sovereign grace. We talk about his sovereignty because throughout the Bible, he shows himself to be utterly and completely in charge. And we talk about grace because you see it across the board. From the moment Adam and Eve rebelled and God put them out of the garden, he could have at that point wiped them out completely, judged them, end of humanity. But in kindness, in grace, he did things like create an enmity between the serpent and the woman because they had been in cahoots and God drove them apart. And then he, while cursing the man and the woman and the serpent, still allowed that there was going to be a second man, a second Adam, and that the second Adam was going to establish the things of God that the first Adam did not. Grace, it's just all grace. I heard a preacher many, many years ago say, there's not 
an ounce, not a scintilla of grace in the law. You can read the law from beginning to end, and there is no grace in the law. The law is very specific and didactic. You do it or die. Absolutely. But then he said, but it was quite gracious of God to give the law, because in so doing, he revealed himself his character, his nature, his expectations, what does righteousness look like, what is holiness, what is the many, many things that we find out about God in his law. So it was gracious of God to give the law. When he got fed up with all of humanity and he was just kind of done with humanity and decided to flood the whole earth, we read, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Very early on, early in Genesis, early in God's dealings with human beings, you see that grace that is like the thread that ties the whole of the Bible together. And so, yeah, we're sovereign grace people, and yeah, we're reformed people, but we are that because that is the theology that the Bible teaches. The one consistent thing that the Bible says over and over again is that you can count on God's faithfulness. You can count on his unerring, unchanging dedication to himself. And that dedication to himself and to his own glory is exemplified in the fact that he will be faithful to the people he has chosen. And if he has placed his love on those people, there's nothing those people can do to change the fact that God loves them. And that's not that difficult to understand. You know, my son is sitting here. And I have told him many, many times, because he'll come to me sometimes when he's frustrated or if he messes up and he'll say to me, I'm afraid that, that you'll be upset with me. Are you still proud of me? And I say, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to change the fact that I love you and I'm proud of you. And I don't care if you end up in jail. I'll still love you and I'll still be your dad, no matter what, and I'll be pulling for you, and I'll do whatever I got. I may leave you there, depending on what you did, but, but nothing's going to change the fact that I'm your dad, and you're my son, and that's how that works. And I get that in human relationships. Well, it's the same object lesson that God is demonstrating when he uses that language of father and son. I'm the father, and you're my son's. Some of you are natural sons. He's going to say it tonight. We're going to see it. Israel is my son. And then we are adopted into the family, and we're called brothers with Christ, for which reason he's not ashamed to call us brethren. And so from beginning to end, front to back, the Bible story, and especially the Old Testament story, is God is faithful no matter what. Wrapped up in that single verse, chapter 11, verse 12 of Hosea. Got that? That was my comment on one verse. This could be a really long night because we're talking about two chapters here. No, it won't be. We're going to go. We can't. These chapters should move pretty quickly. Except that immediately, chapter 10, verse 1, we have to discuss a word. Who has a King James Bible in the room? Get a King James on you, Micah? Okay. Israel is a what kind of vine according to the King James? Empty. 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 Israel is an empty vine, says the King James. The NASB, which I think Jeff has, says what? Luxuriant. A luxuriant vine. Mine says spreading. 
is a spreading vine. Okay, well, this is kind of a big difference in interpretation. And degenerate as an alternate. Yeah. Exactly. It's very hard to find something that is both luxuriant and degenerate at the same time. Or empty. Okay, so why? Well, it's because the Hebrew word actually means to be casting fruit. And so depending on the way that the interpreter looks at that action, they might say, well, because it's casting its fruit, it means casting the fruit off. Therefore, it's an empty vine. But if it's constantly casting off fruit, well, then it's a luxuriant vine. If you look at the larger context, it says he produces fruit for himself, but the more his fruit, the more altars he makes. So then you could say, oh, well, then that means that it's a vine that's a corrupt vine. And so it really all depends on the interpreter. But the essential Hebrew word simply means to be making and casting fruit. And then it's just a matter of perspective how you interpret it. But here's what we know. Israel is a fruit-casting vine. He's describing Israel as they are living in the land at that moment, as they think that they're okay, peace and safety, we're doing fine. They're providing for themselves. They're in the land of milk and honey. But here's their problem. He produces fruit for himself, but the more his fruit, the more altars he made. Now, we have seen this all the way through the Old Testament. The book of Judges is the most obvious example of it, where Israel keeps getting fat and happy and everything's going their way and it's all good. And so they turn away from God and they chase their foreign gods and then God punishes them. And then God sends their enemies in against them. And then there's war in Israel and they cry out to God and say, God, deliver us. And then God faithfully does. And he sends them a judge and they become a leader in Israel. And then they go to war and they cast off their enemies and God gives them the victory. And then you read over and over again in the book of uh, Judges, that there was like 40 years of peace, long enough for the generation that remembered the deliverance of God to pass from the scene. And then you get the next generation that comes along behind them that doesn't remember that. They're just living in the fruit of God being good to them. And so they forget about God. And they start making their deals with the foreigners. They start chasing foreign gods. And then God has to punish them. And then the cycle happens again and again. And consistently, the cycle is always whenever Israel is at rest, whenever they've got food, whenever they've got peace from their enemies, that's when they go chase after their foreign gods. And that is human nature. You see it consistently in history. And you certainly see it in the history of America here just in the last... 14 years. September 11th comes around, buildings fall, and you've got the Congress singing God Bless America on the steps of Congress there. But let a few years go by. What are we doing now? Oh, well, now we're extricating God from the schools and from all our conversations, and he's nowhere in government and separation of church and state, and we don't need any God. Why? Well, because we've been fat and happy for the last several years. And that's just human nature, that whenever God is good to us and blesses us, we, in our ego, feel self-sufficient and go, I did this. You know, 
I'm good, we're safe, it's all good. Until we're absolutely at a point of uh, denial. I mean, like, what happened in France could never happen here. So let's just keep bringing them in. Because, you know, nothing bad can happen to us here. And then our leaders get on TV and say such things. Well, how are we going to learn our lesson? The same way we always learn our lesson, when the trouble comes. When God has to use foreign powers or other kings or other armies to correct us and make us cry out to him again. And we just never seem to learn our lesson. Never seem to learn our lesson that you have to worship God in the good times and the bad times. And that's the only way to maintain that relationship. But Israel, just like humans, as soon as they get comfortable, rebel. He produces fruit for himself. And the more his fruit, the more altars he made. And the richer his land, the better he made the pillars. Okay, these are all, whether you're talking about the mountaintops, whether you're talking about the pillars, whether you're talking about the altars, these are all altars to foreign gods. What God is saying here is they go chasing after all their foreign gods. They make their groves. They make their altars on the mountaintop. They go and they worship Baal. And why do they do that? Well, because the land is rich. The vine is luxuriant. Verse 2, their heart is faithless. Now, they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Now, this is interesting. You could read right by that and, and not pay attention to what's, what Hosea is saying. They're not going to give up on their sacred pillars. They're not going to give up on their altars. They're not going to give up on their worshiping of foreign gods left to themselves. The worst thing God can do to a person is leave them to themselves. Just go ahead. Do it your way. Just whatever you want to do, go ahead. Part of God's faithfulness to faithless Israel is that he's going to knock down their altars. He's going to break up their pillars. He's not going to allow his people to continue in this false worship, chasing after false gods. Now, he's going to correct them. And the way he's going to correct them is going to be through a form of punishment and judgment. But what he's not going to do is give up on them or lose them. Because remember the story in the first two chapters of the book of Hosea. Once Hosea's wife goes running off after her lovers, God says, I'll build a hedge around her. I'll keep her from getting to her lovers, and I will draw her back to me. So that is always the plan for God. He recognizes that Israel is chasing after their foreign gods, and he realizes that if he doesn't interrupt the way that they're behaving, that they're going to continue in their rebellion. But God in grace, in mercy, in faithfulness is going to correct them and turn them and knock down their places of worship and leave them no option but him when he hedges them in. So God is going to break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Surely now they will say, remember this is as the Assyrian captivity is beginning, surely they will say, we have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. So at some point they're going to realize that the reason that the foreign armies are coming in, the reasons that they're being defeated, the reason that they're being taken into captivity and that they don't have their own king anymore, they're going to realize, well, it's because we're not worshiping God. 
We're not following after God. So the punishment is going to teach them, is going to instruct them, which is how, by the way, God works. We all too often think that the difficulties that we go through in this life, the punishments, the corrections that we go through in this life are evidence that maybe God's mad at us or maybe God has forgotten us and now I'm going through this terrible thing. But if you belong to God, the writer of Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he hugs. No. (laughs) Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that if you haven't been chastened, you're not a son. So this is how God works. When he deals with his people, he corrects them. And the writer of Hebrews admits, he says, that kind of correction isn't fun. But it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so here God, consistent with himself, is going to correct Israel. And they will say, we have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. And as for the king, what can he do for us? I mean, once you're under God's punishment, once you're under God's correction, having a king doesn't help. They speak mere words. This is very, very interesting and helps us again to understand the nature and the character of God because he says they speak, the NASB adds mere, the idea being they speak empty words with worthless Worthless. <laughs> you laugh at me. It turns out it's not easy to say. You want to take a shot at it? <laughs> With worthless oaths, they make covenants. So they make promises to God. They turn oaths to God. They make deals with God. And God says, these are just empty words. Meaning that God is under no obligation to listen to the promises and the oaths and the covenants that people make toward him. He knows whether or not these are genuine. He knows whether they're coming from the heart. He knows whether you're actually rebellious and then just bringing your sacrifices or making your promises just out of a vein or an empty religious practice. He knows what's going on, and here he says, These oaths, these covenants, these sacrifices, the way that they worship him, to an outsider, to an observer, you might think, oh, look, that's real, that's genuine. God knows the heart, God knows the difference, and actually calls them worthless because God knows that empty promises, vain repetition, or just just, uh, trying to obligate God through through your much speaking, just simply doesn't impress him. They speak mere words. With worthless oaths, they make covenants. And judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. A good agricultural example there. The furrow is the place where you're going to spread the seed. And so after it's been plowed, the field that's been plowed has all these rows of furrows that the seed is going to go into. But even as the seed is in the furrows, he says, judgment is sprouting up like poisonous weeds, ready to choke off the good fruit. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear because of or for the calf 
of Beth-Avon. We're going to see this word Avon again in verse 8. It is a word that means, at its essence, empty, void of any meaning, void of any value. And so it's interpreted, translated a lot of different ways in the Old Testament, but mostly having to do with vain emptiness. And so he's saying that this calf that they went and worshipped, some of the older Hebrew manuscripts are plural, calves, because there were two golden calves up in Samaria. They are in the house of emptiness, these places where they go to worship. These places where they would worship their golden calves aren't the house of God or art, a house of worship. He says they're a house of vanity, a house of emptiness. So the inhabitants of Samaria will fear because of the calves of the house of emptiness. Indeed, its people will mourn for it and its idolatrous priests will cry over it, over its glory, since whatever glory it had has departed from it. The thing itself, the calves, will be carried to Assyria as tribute to King Jerob, because after all, they're gold. And so here is the thing that they've been worshiping and calling their God, hearkening back to the golden calf that they made at the foot of Mount Sinai that Aaron said, behold, here's your God that delivered you out of Egypt. So here they are in Samaria worshiping yet again golden calves. The point that God is making is the thing you're worshiping is actually just going to be carried off from you, taken away, and given to a foreign king. Not because he wants to worship it, though that may be the case, since they were worshiping all kinds of foreign gods, but probably because it's a golden object. And he calls it a thing. It's just a thing. Okay, so these people are worshiping something that they're calling a god that can actually be picked up and carried away. There's no stability in that. If somebody can come in and rout you and take your god away from you, that's not much of a god. So God is mocking them over this, I believe, in the language of the calf of Beth-Avon, of the house of vanity, of emptiness. And indeed, its people will mourn for it. And its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory, since it has departed from it. The thing itself will be carried to Assyria as tribute to King Jerob. Ephraim will be seized with shame, and Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. Samaria will be cut off with her king like a stick on the surface of the water. Again, great imagery on God's part here. Have you ever looked at a stream or a river and you've seen a stick just going down the river? Well, the reason that that thing is adrift is because it's been cut off from its tree. It's no longer part of the tree that gave it life and sap and root and sustained it. It's been broken off and now it's adrift down the river. And he says, that's what Israel's like. They've been cut off and they're adrift like a stick in a river. Like a stick on the surface of the water. Verse 8. Also, the high places of Avon. There's that word again. The places of their worship. The places on the mountaintops where they put their altars. He again calls Avon empty, detestable places. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. 
Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars, and then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Because at that point, they will realize their absolute guilt, and they will recognize the judgment of God coming on them. Now, if that sounds familiar, in Revelation chapter 6, if you want to look it up, I think it's 6.16, this is the point where Jesus is returning And we read that everybody, all the inhabitants of the earth, everyone whose name is not written in the book, they're all going to run for the mountains and the dens and the caves of the earth and cry to the rocks and say, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Well, that's prefigured all the way back here where God is saying, I am going to judge Israel in such a way where they themselves are going to say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills, fall on us because death would be better than the judgment of God. From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. Last week we talked about the sin of Gibeah. We saw it back in chapter 9, verse 9. And we talked about the story of the Levite and his concubine. And they were traveling on their way to Bethlehem, and they stopped in Gibeah. And the men of the city came after him and came after her, and she died in the night after being repeatedly raped. And then he went back and cut her into pieces and sent pieces out to all the the various tribes. And God points that out as that was like a turning point for you, Israel, the northern tribes. That was a turning point where your sin became just beyond anything you had done before. And he brings it up again here and says... From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. The implication being, after something that bad, you should have repented. After something that bad, you should have turned to me. Instead, that happened, and you just kept getting worse after that. And so they are rightly judged. And yet, he says, and there they stand, because warfare did break out, and Benjamin, where Gibeah is, was cut down to 600 men, but not completely wiped out. And so God, again, speaking historically, says, from the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, and yet there they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? And yet, there they stand. Sinful, depraved, standing in my land, continuing in their wickedness, Verse 10, so when it is my desire, I will chastise them. And the peoples will be gathered against them. Peoples, Gentiles, the Goyim, the foreign nations will be gathered against them when they are bound because of their double guilt. In what way do they have double guilt? Well, because they already had the Gibeah moment. They already knew that they should have repented. They already knew how bad they were getting. God had begun sending them prophets. God was telling them that they needed to turn, that they needed to repent, and they didn't. And now here they are in this state where their rebellion against God is so bad that he's going to drive them out of the land completely. And so he calls it a double guilt. And that takes us to verse 11. And Ephraim, great language again, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh. Here's what that means. When you were plowing and threshing a field, there were two different ways that oxen were used. 
when they were plowing, they would plow in teams and they would have a yoke on their neck because you needed the extra strength to pull through the clods of dirt in order for the plow, which was dug down into the dirt, to break up and turn the dirt. But when threshing time came, you only used one ox, and that one ox was usually the one that was trained to do this because you didn't put any kind of uh, heavy equipment on his neck, and he was allowed to eat. This was part of the law, that you didn't muzzle the ox that threshed out the corn. So that ox was not only trained and taught how to do this, how to, how to thresh out the corn, but he was allowed to eat while he did it. Of the two ox jobs, the threshing ox is the better one. So he says, Israel has had it so good lately, they've been like the threshing ox. They've had plenty to eat, they go out, their fields are full, they thresh out plenty of food, and they're eating while they're doing it. It's kind of like that idea of being a vine that produces for himself. And the more his fruit, the more altars he makes. The picture, again, is I've taken good care of them. They've been well cared for. So Ephraim is like a trained heifer that loves to thresh. But I will come over her fair neck with a yoke, and I will harness Ephraim. Judah will plow, Jacob will harrow, which means break up the clods for himself. In other words, it's God's way of saying, no more easy street. I've blessed you. I've taken care of you. It's been good to you. No more. Now I'm going to make you work for it. Now I'm going to put bondage on you, which he likens to a yoke. So when you sow, now when you're, when you're in this bondage, now when you're out there with this yoke on your neck, now as you're out there doing that work, do it this way, verse 12, sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. There's that consistent theology again, that righteousness is the result of God giving righteousness to people. People cannot achieve righteousness on their own. Righteousness comes from God raining it on you. But here again is that consistent pattern. I'm going to put you into the Assyrian bondage. I'm going to yoke you. I'm going to make it hard. No more just walking in the field like a trained heifer, eating when you want and threshing and having plenty. Now, I'm, now you're going to have to work. You're going into bondage. You're going into slavery. But even as you do that, even as you do the work, sow with a view to righteousness. Because there's a purpose to it. There's a purpose to the punishment that they were going through, and that purpose was to drive them back to God. And so God says, sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. But here's what you have done. Verse 13, you have plowed wickedness, so you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you have trusted in your way and in your numerous warriors, therefore a tumult will arise among your people and all your fortresses will be destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel 
in the day of battle. Shalman, that's Shalmaneser, it's just a shortened version of that name. He is the, uh, the king of, uh, of Syria who is going to come and conquer them, take them into the Assyrian captivity. And you don't read about that particular battle, the Beth Arbel battle, in the Old Testament anywhere, but it is cited in the book of Maccabees, which is one of the intertestamental books. And so it is a historic reality. God was making a reference to something that Israel knew about their own history. And remember I told you that Hosea is prophesying during that time where there had been several incursions into their land by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were already conquering cities one by one, picking them off until finally they came in and took the grand majority of Israel into captivity. So he says, a tumult will arise among your people. All your fortresses will be destroyed as Shalmaneser destroyed Beth Arbal in the day of battle. And one of the things that you read in 1 Maccabees is that as the armies of Shalmaneser were coming into Israel, that it was just massive slaughter and that mothers were actually holding their babies to themselves and bending over their babies, hiding on the ground, and that the soldiers would cut mother and child, just slicing through them. So God makes reference to that. When mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. So God is reminding them of how bad that was and saying, now that's coming to all of you. You can look back on that moment and say, well, that was terrible, but it was isolated to over there. But my punishment now is going to be broader through all of Israel. Thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. If the book had stopped right there, if that was the end of Hosea, that would be really bleak because we've gone through multiple chapters that started with God saying, I have a case against you. And then God laid out his case chapter after chapter after chapter. We have looked at it for weeks. God has said over and over again, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, and I'm going to punish you. And he did. History tells us that he did. And in fact, he drove them out of their land and they have never returned there. And yet we see all the prophets of Israel repeatedly saying that God is going to gather them from the four winds, from the places that he has scattered them, that he's going to bring them back and establish them in their land. And that's chapter 11 again, where God, right in the midst of saying, you know, I'm really going to do this, and it's going to be horrible, and it's going to be awful, but I don't do it because I hate you. I long for you. One of the difficult parts about being a dad, we can get Jeff and Conrad to agree with this, one of the hard things to do when you're a dad is to be the disciplinarian. The first time that you got to punish your child and they look at you with those great big weepy eyes, no one. And you have to, for their own good, for their own correction, you have to allow them to be really angry at you while you punish them for their good. That's really hard when you're a dad and you have a heart for your children. You just really love them. And you just, I don't want to hurt you. I don't, I don't want to punish you. I don't, want to, I don't want to do anything. I want to come home and be happy. I want to come home and my children run to my side. And daddy, we love you. And then you just, you, you walk around singing songs in harmony and it's just all good. And 
But that's not the way it works because children are rebellious. And so the difficult thing you have to do is correct your children. And the Bible certainly has a lot to say about that, that you have to correct your children. But a good father doesn't correct his children because he hates them. A good father corrects them because he loves them. And he longs for peace and restoration with them. And that's chapter 11. Chapter 11 is God saying, but I do love you. I do long for you. In fact, I long for my relationship with you to be harmonious, to be restored. I want you to be the good children I always intended you to be. And that's why I'm going to have to punish you, is to correct you. But chapter 11, verse 1 starts with, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Somebody look up Exodus 4, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. Because all the way back in the book of Exodus, God's speaking through Moses to Pharaoh, refers to Israel as his son. In fact, as his firstborn son. Who's got it? I looked your way. Prince too small. No, can't do it. 22 and 23. Jeff, you got that? Yeah, uh, Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Okay, well, we all know the story of the final plague that God poured out on Egypt the night of the Passover, the night that the Israelites left Egypt, which is that God killed all the firstborn of Egypt. Well, here's the explanation for it. God says to Pharaoh through Moses, Israel is my son. And repeatedly, Moses has come to you and said, let my son come out and worship me. And repeatedly, you've refused. So now I'm going to go after your sons, since you held on to my sons. But look at the language. Israel is my son, even my firstborn son. So that language of father and son is very specific. Out of all the people groups on the planet at the time, you don't find any other people group that God referred to as my firstborn son. I think the language of firstborn is because they are the first people group that God chose. Out of all humanity, out of all the people, it was the descendants of Abraham because of the promise he made with Abraham that were the first people that he said, these are my sons. National Israel, collectively, my son. And then Israel came out of Egypt and Hosea 11.1 makes a direct reference to that historical reality. When Israel was a youth, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, he's going to go on in chapter 11 to talk about this father-son relationship and talk about Israel as a youth in Egypt. And so when God created the relationship with them, the firstborn son relationship, he said, you were really young and you didn't know anything. And so like a good father, I raised you, I instructed you, I took you into your land. But now that you're grown, now the time has gone by, now you should be responsible men, and you're guilty as responsible men. But when I found you, children, just my son. Now, Matthew 2.15. Go over there. Go to Matthew 2 for a second. Keep your finger there in Hosea. Go to Matthew. 
And we have to dig into it just a little bit here because you can go online right now and Google the phrase, out of Egypt I call my son, and you will get lots and lots of theological speculation. Because in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13, this is when Mary and Joseph take Jesus into Egypt because after the visit of the wise men, Herod had begun killing the children. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose, and he took his child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And he took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt did I call my son. Now he's quoting directly from what we just read in Hosea 11.1. But what's really interesting is that Hosea 11.1 is not a prophecy. It's a citation of a historic reality. What Hosea said is, you're my son, Israel, and I called you out of Egypt. Whereas a prophecy is more like he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then he is born in Bethlehem. There, prophecy, fulfillment. Or uh, Isaiah's suffering servant. Clearly prophetic. Clearly not talking about anything that had already happened. But talking about something that's going to happen, and then Jesus comes on the stage of history and fulfills it. So there's your prophecy fulfillment. But Hosea 11.1 is a statement by Hosea about Israel coming out of Egypt. But look at the context. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And the more they, most commentaries will tell you that that is a reference to the prophets that they called Israel. God kept sending prophets. God kept calling to Israel. But the more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to the idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. Back to that childhood thing. So when Israel was brought out of Egypt, it was my son. My son came up out of Egypt but when they came up out of Egypt, they came up and rebelled. Not the same with Jesus. Jesus is referred to as God's son. And Matthew picks up that phrase, out of Egypt I call my son, and says that that was fulfilled. Now the word fulfilled here, the Greek word, oh, I get to do one of these Greek diphthongs that I'm so bad at. But P-L-E-R-O-O, -O, usually with a long line out over the second O, pleruo is the Greek word, and it doesn't necessarily mean fulfilled, like prophetically fulfilled. What the word actually means is just filled up, filled to the brim. And so what Matthew might be getting at here is that there are these parallels between Israel coming out of Egypt and then going through the Red Sea, which Paul says is all of Egypt being baptized into the Red Sea, and then they go 40 years into the wilderness. When you look at Jesus, 
And he came up out of Egypt. And then when his ministry began, baptized in the Jordan, and then 40 days into the wilderness. And so there are these sort of parallels between what Israel did coming out of Egypt and what the ministry of Jesus was. So those parallels do exist. However, as I said, if you just Google that phrase, you will find a lot of theology that says that because of what Matthew writes in Matthew 2.15, and because he quotes Hosea 11.1, that what Matthew means to say is Jesus is the new Israel, or Jesus is the true Israel. And they all make that leap. I mean, it's a really common leap. And from there, of course, they just extrapolate. From there, they just start building theology on the concept of Jesus as the true or the new Israel. Now, the parallels do exist, but none of the New Testament writers ever use the phrase true Israel, nor do any of them ever call Jesus Israel, and that's important. Now, what both Hosea and Matthew do say is that it's about son, and this I'm okay with. Israel was the firstborn son and they came out of Egypt, but what did they do? They came out of Egypt and went immediately into idol worship and apostasy. They did not stay true and faithful to God. What is the significance of Jesus being the son that was called out of Egypt? He is the son that remained faithful after he returned to Israel coming out of Egypt. All of that I'm good with. I'm fine with all of that. What I don't think you can do is make the unwarranted leap to Jesus is now Israel. Especially if you're going to use that as the basis to develop a whole other theology on a statement that none of the New Testament writers make. On a parallel and a conclusion that none of the New Testament writers make. So I think what Matthew is getting at in quoting this is what I just stated, that there is a faithful son, and there is an unfaithful son. Because the context of Hosea is, my son came out of Egypt, and then God leaps right to their apostasy. But Jesus is the son that came out of Egypt, and then satisfied God, and remained the good and faithful son. And I think that's as much as you can get out of that parallel. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So that takes us to Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. And they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. And yet, it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. The evidence being, of course, that no sooner does God get them out of Egypt. And remember that the night that they were delivered out of Egypt, that we read in the book of Exodus, that there was nobody sick among them, nobody blind or halt or lame or anything. And you know these people, after having been 400 years in bondage, there had to be people with broken limbs. There had to be Israelites who were damaged. There had to be. And yet that night, they all walked out healthy. And then God 
takes them to Mount Sinai, and as he's giving Moses the law that codifies them as a nation, they're down there worshiping a calf because they don't know that it was Yahweh that healed them. Verse 3, yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. And I bent down and I fed them. What great language. Now again, to any of you who have ever had children, you have to bend down to feed them. If they're on the ground and they don't have high chairs and it's time to feed them, you go down to them because they can't get up to you. But look at the language of humility here where God said, I bent down to them. I I reached down to them because there was no way they could get to me. And I delivered them and I taught them to walk and I fed them and I loved them because they're my son. They will not return to the land of Egypt. Now, last week we looked at Moses saying, To Israel, if you don't follow this law, you'll return to Egypt. And we talked about the fact that there was a remnant of Israel who, running from the Assyrians, headed south and ended up in Egypt. But nationally, God says, I'm not going to put them back in Egypt. That's where I found them in their childhood. That's what I nurtured them out of. That's where I healed them. I'm not going to put them there. But Assyria, he will be their king because they refused To return to me. And the sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning away from me. Though they call them, this again would be the prophets calling them to the one on high, and yet none exalts him. None lifts God up. None worships God, despite being called repeatedly to repent and come back to God. But look at verse 8. But how can I give up on you, O Ephraim? Why? Well, because he's my son. He's my firstborn. He's still the one I love. I'm going to correct him. I'm going to instruct him. I'm going to hedge him about. I'm going to knock down all his altars and his high places. I am going to make sure that his cities are destroyed. I'm going to make sure that he's taken into captivity. I'm going to put a yoke on his neck. I'm going to stop all that bad behavior. Here, let me put it to you this way. I had a friend many years ago who was a nurse. She came and visited here a few times before she moved away. Jane was her name. And when she came here to visit over the course of a few months, early in GCA's history, she was working with AIDS patients. And she was talking about the fact that oftentimes she would see AIDS patients die terrified. But she said she met one young man who said to her that getting AIDS was the best thing that had ever happened to him. And he thanked God for it. And he said, my life was so bad. I was so out of control. I was doing such truly heinous things that God had to stop me with a sledgehammer and he stopped me cold with a killer disease. 
And she said, when he died, he died smiling. And the last words on his lips in his lifetime were talking about God. So God will use severe corrective measures. And if you do belong to him, you will recognize them as being that. That's what this is. This isn't hatred. This is correction the way a father would lovingly correct a son and just stop him from doing it. Just stop it. You know, if your child's playing in the street and there's a car coming, you don't say, you know, if you feel like it, if you have the time, it'd be nice for you to get out of the street because there's an oncoming car careening toward you. No, you yell, you scream, you run, you grab, you dive, you do whatever you got to do to protect the child because sometimes extreme measures are necessary to protect the one you love. That's what God is saying here. I'm going to extremes here in order to stop this activity of them worshiping other gods. I am going to correct them. I am going to hedge them about. I am going to take away their gods and their altars and their other means of worship. And I am going to give them one option and one option only. And the only option they're going to have is me. How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Do you know those names? Somebody look up Deuteronomy 29 real quick. Deuteronomy 29, 23. What you're going to find out is that those were two cities on the plain in the same place where Sodom and Gomorrah were. And we hear about Sodom and Gomorrah all the time. But when Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped out, so were these two cities. You just don't hear about it as much. They were residual. They just happened to be in the area. Well, bad news for you but apparently also guilty. Somebody got Deuteronomy 29, 23? If you do, you have to say the word Zeboim. So, yeah. Oh, Carol's got it here. Read it for us, Carol. And that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning that is not sown nor beareth nor any grass groweth therein like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim. <laughs> Well, there, you did pretty good, Zeboim, yeah. So there, he says, they, that whole area was overthrown with fire and sulfur and burning, and now it's not planted and there's no grass or anything because these were the cities of the plains. And so God says, how can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Now, why were those cities destroyed? Because of their extreme sinfulness. But then God looks at Israel, who were just as guilty and says, but how can I give up on you? Well, why not? Why not give up on Israel? They're as guilty. Well, because they're his. Because he chose them. Because they're his son. My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. Oh, I love that phrase because so frequently in the Old Testament, you read that God's fury is kindled. Usually that word kindled, having to do with fire, is God's wrath, his anger is kindled. And here he says, my compassion is kindled. When he really thinks about them, when he just stops and and thinks about them, he says, "I, I do love you and I can't give up on you. And I'm not going to destroy you. I will not execute my fierce anger, says verse 9. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, 
I am the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the West. Okay, what is this about now? This is all eschatological. He's now talking about the ultimate restoration of Israel. And he says, I am going to punish you, and there is going to be a terrible punishment, and it's going to be awful. But after that, I'm not going to execute my fierce anger or destroy Ephraim. Look at the word again. He will do it once. He has done it. He's in the midst of doing it. And it's finally going to wrap up in what we know as the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. The time is such as never was or ever will be again. But then ultimately, he says, I'm not going to destroy Ephraim because I'm God and I'm not a man. Men would. Men would give up on you. Men would say, enough, and destroy you. But I'm not like you. I'm God, and therefore I am the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And then they will walk after the Lord. That hasn't happened yet. He will roar like a lion. He's going to have that kind of authority in the Middle East and in the world that he does not have right now. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling. Where? From the west. He's going to bring them again in. Now, if you're in Israel, what's west? Europe. And the Isles and the Americas and the, you know, it's just, it's West. And so God is saying, I'm going to bring them back. And that again is the consistent promise of all of the prophets of Israel that the time is coming when God is going to bring them from all the places where God has scattered them and restore them to their land. They will come trembling, says verse 11, trembling like birds from Egypt. And like doves from the land of Assyria. Okay, so they're going to come from the west, that's Europe. They're going to come from Egypt, that's south. They're going to come from Syria and Assyria, that's east. Okay, they're coming from all over the four corners of the world. He is going to bring them back like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Ephraim surrounds me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One, who is faithful. And that's where we started tonight. So we've made the full circle. You get the point? God is faithful. God is faithful to Israel because Israel is his firstborn son. And even though they have rebelled terribly, even though they've chased after their foreign gods, God is going to punish them. God is going to correct them. But God is not going to lose them. And he's going to have compassion toward them because they are his. And again, that is really good news if you are one of those people who belong to him. Because no matter what you do, we keep saying it. The electing grace of God, once he has chosen you, there's nothing you can do to get out of that electing grace. But that's not the theology that uh, reformers made up. That's the theology of the Old Testament as well. It's the theology of the whole Bible. Once God has chosen you, you belong to him. And yes, he'll correct you, but he won't lose you. Because his compassion and his grace will see to it that you wind up in his presence, in his good pleasures, where there is joy evermore. And I think if over the course of thousands of years he can deal with that many millions of people 
and can nationally deal with them and punish them and scatter them and then restore them and establish them and give them the kingdom. If he can do all that, he can handle Carol. Right? He can handle Conrad. He can handle every one of us because he has the entirety of world history to point to to say, I'm in charge and I know what I'm doing. And I choose people, I elect people, I draw people, and because they're mine, I'll never lose them. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.